Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist. On today's program... Where some see nothing at all... We see new ways to communicate. We are the engineers of Huawei. The latest on the Chinese tech company Huawei at the center of the American-China trade war. How illicit trade is threatening our future and the secretive world of family offices. Money management is the main thing they do, but they do a whole host of other things as well. Legal work, tax work, even down to sort of making sure that the right drinks are in the limo for members of the family when they arrive at an airport possibly the most important part of the financial landscape that you've never heard of. Welcome to Money Talks. First, Huawei. The giant Chinese tech company sells more phones than Apple and this year became the world's second largest smartphone maker behind Samsung. What is the spark that leads to a new idea? At the beginning of December, its chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou, was arrested as she changed planes in Vancouver in Canada. She faces extradition to America over claims she misled banks into making transactions that violated American sanctions against Iran. She also happens to be the daughter of the company's founder. China's demanded Miss Meng's release, insisting she's not violated any laws. In a statement, Huawei said it was not aware of any wrongdoing by Miss Meng. Huawei. Making innovation meaningful. The company's now centre stage in the trade war between the US and China. Stephanie Studers, The Economist's senior China business correspondent, and joins me now from Shanghai. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Simon. Uh, now, this bail hearing is underway, and, and I understand that, amongst other things, Ms. Meng has, has offered her husband up as surety. What does that say about their relationship? <laughs> That's right. And I think that it, it looked like the judge himself was also had to go away and sort of think about this. There was a question that came up today in the hearing concerning the visa status of her husband, because this hearing and the extradition process itself could take weeks or months. Uh, and so he had to be certain that her husband would be around. So it's not clear yet what will happen with this bail hearing, whether she will be extradited or not. That's right. In fact, America still needs to put in a formal extradition request. It has a couple of months to do that now. It will now enter a third day in court as to whether or not she will be granted bail while she awaits a decision on the extradition. And what details do we know of the crime she's accused of? I, I described it as misleading banks into violating sanctions on Iran. How, how, how come? Yes, that's right. So it seems that she was involved in a presentation given to HSBC in which she is alleged to have misrepresented Huawei's relationship to Skycom, which has dealt with Iran on telecoms. 
and therefore that the bank may have cleared financial transactions for Huawei that meant they inadvertently did business with Skycom. At the moment, the relationship between Huawei and Skycom is what is at issue. So I suppose it's important to say that the case so far on its face is not about sanctions violations directly, or indeed about Huawei products being compromised by Chinese intelligence agencies. Indeed. Nevertheless, that is the suspicions about Huawei. And this has become a huge issue for both sides in the continuing trade disputes between China and the US. I mean, what what is China saying about this at the official level? Well, actually, in state media, at least, China's reaction has been relatively muted, given how important this arrest is. In the first couple of days, there were some state mouthpieces that said that this was an act of hooliganism. And in fact, a lot of it has been directed primarily at Canada rather than America. China wants to avoid derailing a delicate trade truce that was reached when Xi Jinping met Donald Trump in Buenos Aires last month. So the heat is being directed at Canada. Are there any signs that Canada might buckle? I think that uh, you probably don't want to be you know, a Canadian business person with a high profile in China these days. I mean, there are, there's anecdotal evidence that you know, also American business leaders are reconsidering trips to China. It's unclear if China would want to retaliate so directly, if it would be a sort of tit for tat you know, you've detained one of our stars and now we'll detain one of yours. But there have been reports of Canada Goose products possibly suffering from a boycott, although there are a lot of these rumours circulating on Chinese social media, including boycotts of Apple, but, you know, the stores are still full of eager buyers. You mentioned that one of the suspicions about Huawei is that it's a kind of proxy for the Chinese government and that its equipment might be doctored in some way to uh, help the Chinese state to... Um, we've seen that that cause it trouble in Australia, in India, I think. Has there ever been any actual evidence that, that that's what it's up to? Well, to our knowledge, there hasn't been any evidence. So often this hinges on a discussion around whether or not Huawei has installed what's known as backdoors into its code, which would allow it to spy through its networks. But to our knowledge, this hasn't been found. It has actually an unusual arrangement in Britain with its intelligence agency, where its products are scrutinised and subjected to security testing. Britain seems happy with that arrangement, even if recently it looks like slightly chillier or equivocal reports have been coming out about its security. The firm has always denied any improper links with the Chinese state. Huawei, it said, complies with all applicable laws and regulations where it operates. You mentioned earlier that China seemed to be playing down its anger at America over this because of the hope of a brief truce in the trade war after Presidents Trump and Xi met in Buenos Aires. But if that truce proves illusory... What would that say for the future of Huawei in, the, in this trade war? Well, I think that the suspicions around Huawei will only continue to deepen. That's not going to go away. There is a bigger question about whether or not the arrest in particular of Miss Meng might be used as a bargaining chip. I think that for now, this is very much part of a judicial process. Stephanie, thank you very much. That was Stephanie Studer, our senior China business correspondent in Shanghai. 
And if you want to read more stories from our correspondents and columnists, don't forget to subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next, does transnational crime destabilise legitimate governments and even lead to international conflicts? That's a question my next guest may be able to shed some light on. Louise Shelley is the director of the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Centre at George Mason University in Virginia. And she's written a new book called Dark Commerce, How a New Illicit Economy is Threatening Our Future. Louise, welcome to Money Talks. Delighted to be here. Firstly, um, let's define terms. What sorts of things are we talking about in, in terms of illicit economy? Sex, drugs, endangered species? That's just the first part of it. There are many, many new commodities of the illicit economy. The largest one is counterfeits. There's arms. There's many products that people are trading that are what we need to sustain the environment. Illicit trade in fish, in water, in trees, in pesticides, dangerous pesticides. So the problem has gotten much broader than it was. And then there's a major problem of theft of intellectual property, as well as people's identities and the passwords that give them access to robbing people's bank accounts. Can I just pick you up on a couple of those? Because they're, they're interesting. Uh, illegal trade in water? Yes. At the moment, in many parts of the developing world where there are mega cities, there's not enough water. And there are water mafias operating selling water to the, the poor at just extremely high prices. And if you think about how the Syrian conflict started, it started over an illicit trade in water rights. And so the people in the countryside during the drought couldn't have water to grow their crops, and they migrated by the millions into the cities. And where the conflict started in Syria was in the areas where there was the greatest concentration of migrants. So it all started with an illegal water trade. So we're clearly talking vast amounts of money here. I mean, do you have any idea, even rough idea, of the scale of the illicit economy globally? It's very hard to know because it's so hidden. There are estimates that it's in the trillions of dollars annually. If you combine all of these, it might be as much as 10% of the global economy, maybe even higher than that. But its impact is most severe in areas which are less regulated, less governance, and therefore there's an increasingly important effect in many parts of the developing world where this illicit money has even more impact. And how much has it been facilitated or encouraged by new technologies, by the internet, by digital currencies, for example, like Bitcoin? I say that the new economy thanks to cyber world and social media, is basically illicit trade on steroids. We've known illicit trade since antiquity because back in the first legal code of Hammurabi, we have provisions against fenced property, stolen property. So it's always existed, but now it is just on a massive scale because it is anonymous, it can move very rapidly, and in the most recent states of cyber crime and illicit trade, we're looking at much use of cryptocurrencies, of which Bitcoin is the most known, but is only one of many that are being used, some of them which are used almost exclusively for illicit purposes. 
The title of your book is quite gloomy, that this is threatening our future. Are you suggesting that the criminals will always be one step ahead of those chasing them? In this book, I say that it's not just criminals that are part of this. There's not enough organized crime to do this much harm to the planet. So what we have as part of this criminal equation are kleptocrats, very powerful heads of state or heads of regional governments who are selling off timber by the billions of dollars. It's not just criminals. And the problem is expanding and illicit financial flows are growing and leaving many parts of the developing world, depriving the countries of resources for development and denying people access to education, health, and the employment that they need with growing populations in many parts of the developing world. You described how illegal sales, illicit trade, had a role in the Syrian civil war. Are there other conflicts around the world, even cross-border conflicts, that you can point to and say that was started by this illegal trade? I can say that it was started, but illicit trade has been absolutely essential in perpetuating conflict. In Afghanistan, it's been drugs and timber. In Iraq and Syria, it's been antiquities. It's been the movement of other illicit commodities. In the FARC in Colombia, it's been gold apart from drugs. So we're looking at many different commodities and many of them of natural resources that are fueling conflict. And for the ordinary person in the, in the street, in the, in the West, if you like, is this something that they can ignore? If it's, if it's drugs in Afghanistan, they can say, that's nothing to do with me. In the United States, we've had over 60,000 people last year die from our opioid epidemic. Much of this bought online of fentanyl, the drugs that kill people that they just purchase online. We have people buying counterfeit pharmaceuticals that also wind up in emergency rooms of hospitals. Looking specifically at the fentanyl trade, it's something we're covering in, in this week's Economist, where China has said it will try and do something to, to stem this flow. Do you, do you see any prospect of that happening? One of the problems is that China has literally dozens and dozens of fentanyl websites, or websites selling fentanyl, that are only available to individuals in the West. And many of these websites are selling fentanyl from legitimate corporations in China. But none of these have been cracked down on. So they're not hidden. They're not on the dark web. They're not a few entrepreneurs off in a corner. They are companies that could easily be known to the Chinese government, yet they're not taking action against them. And one of the questions I ask is whether this is the revenge of the opium wars. As I said, this is an extremely dark picture you're presenting. Can you point to any chink of light where the, the forces of good, if you like, are, are, are getting the upper hand? I would say that there's a lot that can be done. And it's like climate change. We need to organize, we need to be aware of this, and we need to be promoting change. Louise, thank you very much. That was Louise Shelley, and the book is called Dark Commerce, How a New Illicit Economy is Threatening Our Future. And finally, to the ultra-wealthy and how they invest their billions. 
The super-rich these days are more and more likely to run their finances through the use of what are called family offices. These are usually teams of professionals employed to ensure that the dynastic wealth is safe and earning a decent return. Matthew Valencia is The Economist's Special Assignments Editor and has been looking at family offices. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Simon. Of course, given our peculiar demographic amongst our listenership, I'm sure most of our listeners have family offices of their own. But for the benefit of the rest of us, what are they? Well, Peter York, the cultural critic, once described them as super help for the super rich. And I think that that sums them up quite nicely. The main job of a family office is to manage money for a billionaire or somebody else who is very rich. They are private offices set up by those individuals. Money management is the main thing they do, but they do a whole host of other things as well. Legal work, tax work, and even things like so-called concierge services, which involve security, travel arrangements, even down to sort of making sure that the right drinks are in the limo for members of the family when they arrive at an airport. So it's, it's a whole host of things, really. And how much money are we talking of here? How much is under management, do we think, by family offices? Well, these things are by definition private and secret. So we we don't know is the is the answer. But billionaires hold around $9 trillion these days. And there are estimates floating around of what sits in family offices. It could be somewhere between 3 or $4 trillion, which makes the assets in family offices greater than those in the hedge fund industry. Wow. So these are clearly a fad at the moment among the the super rich, among the billionaire classes. But are, are they a new idea? They're not, no. Family offices in some form or other go back centuries. I mean, even I suppose you could say to the, to the time when stewards managed wealth for royalty. But the modern family office is a 19th century concept. It was something that J.P. Morgan, the investment banker, developed and the Rockefellers, of course, after that. So it's about 150 to 200 years old in its modern form. And I suppose they are secretive institutions. Do we have any clear idea how many of them there are? Again, no, not exactly. I mean, part of the problem is definitional. It's difficult to pin down exactly what a family office is. There are sort of private investment companies that some people might say count as a family office and others would say don't. But 10, 20 years ago, they were probably in the hundreds, 500, maybe a 1,000 of them. A survey that came out a few months ago by UBS and Camden Wealth suggests that the number has really exploded since around 2000, 2005. And in the last 10 or 15 years, the number could have gone up to something like 5,000 or even more single family offices. Now, a single family office is one that that manages money for just the one family. On top of that, there are multi-family offices, as they're known, which manage for a number of families. It could be a couple, it could be 10, 20 or even more. And uh, if you add all of those in, you could be talking about seven, seven and a half, maybe 8,000 in total. Is it a problem that they're so secretive? Are they regulated at all or are they completely under the radar of the authorities? As investment advisors, they have broad exemptions from regulation, which seems fair enough if you're just managing for a family or a group of families, if there's no external money. They are subject to capital markets rules and stock market regulations. And in fact, not too long ago, the family office of George Soros was fined for a violation uh, related to short selling. So, you know, they do get picked up by the regulations, but they also enjoy broad exemptions from the sort of rules that a lot of commercial investment advisors are subject to. And if, as you suggest, they're growing in importance and size, is that likely to change? Are they likely to face a crackdown? I think 
we're likely to see more and more of that in future. There are a number of economists and others out there who point the finger at family offices and say that they cause or, or exacerbate global inequalities and they help to entrench elitism. And I think that will serve as a lightning rod and we can expect more calls for restrictions of one sort or another and we may well see regulators responding to that, as we've seen before, of course, with private equity, with hedge funds, with sovereign wealth funds. And it's actually quite interesting. Hedge funds now obviously face a lot more regulation than they did 10 or 15 years ago. And quite a large number of hedge funds are basically saying we don't want to manage external money anymore, giving it back and turning themselves into family offices, which is quite striking. And I suppose the concern here is not just that they might be evading tax or breaking market rules, but that they might somehow be stealing a march on the rest of the market. Is that right? That's right. There are concerns about family offices because of the amount of money that sits in them and the power that they have being essentially sort of crony capitalist vehicles and getting the best deals for themselves and sort of rigging the market in their favour and also lobbying to do so. But there isn't really any evidence of that. I mean, if you look at their returns, their returns don't seem to be outsized. So there isn't evidence of any great benefit from insider dealing. And in fact, there are many examples of family offices which have struck out because increasingly they are doing direct investment, private equity style investments. And many of the deals they've done haven't gone terribly well, um, far from being absolute winners. And in terms of lobbying, yes, there are issues around lobbying. And we've seen billionaires either individually or through their family offices lobbying, for instance, against wealth taxes. But that's something they can do anyway. And how their wealth is structured doesn't really make too much difference, I don't think, to the lobbying power that they have. Matthew, thank you very much. That was Matthew Valencia, our Special Assignments Editor. Don't forget, you can make sure you don't miss one episode of Money Talks by subscribing to our podcast. But that's all for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.